Welcome everyone to the Two Tongues Podcast. Consider this your invitation to join Kyle and Chris on a journey through our minds. Where we explore the questions that have fascinated us for as long as we can remember. Could anarchy actually work? Does God exist? And just how did the cosmos get here anyway? Let me be the Virgil to your Dante, the Sacagawea to your Lewis and Clark. Let's take the guided tour through the dark chambers of our unconscious, seeking answers to the most important and unsettled questions of our shared existence. Ready or not, here we go. Ready or not. Mm. Good morning, Two Tongues audience. This is Chris coming at you again with a solo episode of the podcast. This one was interesting, so um, I'll jump right in. So the other day, Kyle and I were talking, and I brought up, for those of you who remember, I brought up uh, a question I had about teaching my children to to pray. So if you guys remember that conversation, just talking about how my mom taught me growing up and uh, kind of the benefits that I thought praying had um, psychologically for me, just dealing with growing up and, um, you know, whether you believe in God or not, it doesn't really matter that there was some value to that for me. And I was wondering whether I should provide that to my kids. I, I had a feeling that I don't want to persuade their thinking in a way that um, leads them in, in, the, in down the wrong direction. I don't want to. I don't want them to just regurgitate all of my ideas. You know, I want them to have their own. But they're very young, and they and they're not ready to do that. So it's it's challenging, and um, it's, I, I've been struggling with it. But the, uh, the main reason that I brought up uh, before about wanting that for my daughters is uh, has has to do with gratitude. It has to do with. There's really two things actually. I mentioned this first one before, but I'll tell you the other. The first one was. Um, like I said, as a kid, as a young kid, um, being taught to pray and uh, at night before I go to bed and being taught to uh, thank God for all the things that I'm grateful for. So it got me to think about all the things that I'm grateful for. Not only that, but it got me to think about it every single day. And so I was repeating some things and some things were new. And so it was always it was always on the top of my mind at the end of every day, right before I went to sleep, um, I guess practicing maybe thinking about things on the bright side, you know, oh, you know, even if I had a shitty day or a shitty week or lots of, you know, whatever, uh, nothing good to, to say to find something, uh, to be grateful for. And, you know, we do that on Thanksgiving around the dinner table or whatever. We do that on TV. I don't know if anybody actually does, but that's kind of the idea. Imagine doing that every single day. Uh, imagine doing it on your own, like, you know, after a certain age, it wasn't something my mom, my mommy was helping me with, but I was just continuing to do it on my own. So things sink in in a different way. And so this kind of has to do with gratitude. The other example that I didn't bring up, but I want to bring it up just to kind of just, I don't know, because it freaking occurred to me. Uh, when I was uh, like 12, uh, Kyle and I uh, spent some time with his, his aunts and we got exposed to uh, Anne Rice novels. We were reading these vampire books from the 90s. You know, these these aren't Twilight books. These are legit gothic horror. Anne Rice is just an amazing writer. But one of the things that she does, if you've read her, you know what I mean, she's very wordy in a descriptive way. So some people read it 
and they hate it because it takes three or four pages to get to get through a scene, and the scene could be as simple as a vampire coming into a room, and she's describing it, and it's three pages long. And that's, um, for some people, frustrating, and they're like, Jesus, you know, let's, let's move, move along. But when I was a kid, it was painting the picture for me, and it did a really good job of that. In fact, such a good job that it made me interested in reading for the first time. Like I, I'd done it because I had to, but I wasn't like into it. And that was the first time I read a novel cover to cover, you know, 500 pages or whatever. Um, you know, and it was an adult novel, so it was a little bit above my, um, you know, my level. But I, I was in, into it, and I read it, and it, it opened up the world world of reading to me. So it's been really positive. But it was. The way Anne Rice describes things, you know, it's really, it's, I'd like, like to pull out a book and give you an example, but I don't have one handy. Um, it would be something like describing, you know, the way the sun is coming into the room, the way the um, linens feel and look, the shadows, the, the, the way they feel, the way, they, the way that the air smells, you know, just all of these little details, painting this picture in words. <clears throat> and what, what that did... Again, it like like I said, it painted the picture, and I enjoyed it. But it also made me pay attention to those little details that people would generally, like I said, get used to and never think about. Things like how beautiful a freaking quilt looks when it's just draped over your legs, and like you can see these these um, Baroque and Renaissance artists spending so much time trying to capture that the shadows and the folds of fabric. It's free. It, if you've never stopped to look at that. And appreciate just how unbelievably beautiful it is. Do it, and that's what Anne Rice forced forced me to do as a kid. She's like, "Look, this is this beautiful scene. This, you know, damn near miraculous beauty that that is everywhere." And she's painting the picture that that forces you to see it that way, or maybe forces you to see it that way again, like the way you, maybe you did when you were a very young child, and the whole world looks like a freaking miracle, um, magical. So anyway, I just got this idea of gratitude in, uh, in my head, and um, I had this idea that came to me years and years ago, maybe when I was a teenager, and it seemed tied to this idea of gratitude, so I just kind of wrote it out, and I wanted to talk about it with you guys today. I don't know how long it'll take, but I don't want to do this for you. It goes something like this. Have you ever considered the Ten Commandments that Moses gave, you know, that God gave to Moses, I should say? Have you ever considered the Ten Commandments from the perspective of the last man on earth? There's no other human beings, just you. Maybe you're, the, maybe you're Adam, maybe you're the first human being and there's no others. Maybe it's the apocalyptical scenario and you're the only one left. And you've got these rules that God has said, hey, this is how you should conduct yourself. These are the things that are important to God. These are the things that are, if you live up to, they're going to make you... Um, uh, accord with uh, the law of God, whatever. These are, these are the bare minimum. This is what God wants you to do. How many of those commandments make any sense if you're the only human being? And I guess, and I guess why I thought that was so interesting, and you'll see it when I start reading it, you're like, yeah, he's got a good point. What, what do any of these rules mean if you're the only person? It's really unclear. But it also makes you wonder if God is so concerned about how we're at treating one another, because that's what these commandments really boil down to, is how we treat one another, um, that there is this weird, 
I don't want to say connection, but there's this weird, like, blurry line between how the Ten Commandments talk about how you should treat God and how you should treat one another, where it's hard to tell the difference. So you'll, you'll, this will make some more sense when we start reading it from the perspective, from the lens of the last man on earth. But I want to mention before we get into these, you guys probably know the Ten Commandments, I would, I would hope. Um, although we, we were just talking about this the other day, my wife and I, and I asked my wife and uh, her aunt if they could recite the Ten Commandments from memory. And that didn't go as well as you might think. It's, a, it's almost as hard as, uh, uh, man, shame on, shame on me and shame on us. America, uh, for for uh, being just as un, unable to recite the, um, you know, the uh, Bill of Rights, let's say. Like, I could get some of them, but could I get all of them from memory? Probably not, and shame on us, you guys. All right, so if you read them, though, these Ten Commandments, they do seem to be broken up into two categories, and I will, uh, I'll read them for you in, in that order, but to the two categories seem to be um, how we manage our relationships with God and how we manage our relationships with one another. So like rules pertaining to us and God and rules pertaining to us and other human beings. And those how those are how the Ten Commandments break kind of 50-50. But it is interesting to see just how little, if any, of the Ten Commandments make sense when taken from the perspective of the last man on earth. So... So what would the Ten Commandments mean if you were the only human in existence? And more importantly, what does the lack of meaning mean? So here we go. This is the Ten Commandments from the perspective of the last man on earth. All right. <clears throat> okay, so I'm going to skip to the latter part of these commandments. Uh, these are the ones that I say pretty clearly they, they have to do with our, how we behave towards one another. So our relationship to each other. You guys probably remember Honor thy father and thy mother. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Uh, thou shalt not cover thy, thy neighbor's house, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. So these are the ones that uh, you can kind of see have something to do with how we treat one another. Whether it's honoring your father and mother, try not to kill or cheat on each other, you know, steal from each other. It's about how we how we interact with each other. The first set, though, of commandments are to do specifically with God. So you guys know, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven images. Um, you've also got, thou shalt not take the, the name of the Lord in vain. And remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. So these are the other set of commandments. And they have to do, they all have to do with God. All right. So we know them; they're familiar. We've we've uh, uh, we've highlighted them. So I'm going to start with with those that have to do with how we relate to one another, and let me just talk through these a little bit. Remember, we're going to talk through these from the perspective of the only man alive, the last human being. Honor thy father and thy mother, and in the passage goes on. It says, "Honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee." All right, so let's think about this. If you were the only human, you wouldn't have a father or a mother, right? So nobody to honor. If you're the last man on earth, you've got no father and mother. So what does this honor thy father and mother mean if you're the only human being on earth? So there's one perspective that says it doesn't mean anything. 
You don't have a father and a mother, so who are, you, who are you supposed to honor? What does this commandment mean if you're the only person on earth? Well, maybe nothing here. Unless, unless of course, you think like an ancient. So in, in classical antiquity, it was, it was a common belief that you had your mother, your actual mother, but you also had something that was abstracted like Mother Earth, something more like a, like a great goddess. And then on the flip side... Father is your father, of course, but it's also abstracted as Father Heaven or Father Sky. So you have Mother Earth, you have Father Sky. And these are considered to be primordial gods. Um, very often they're the two halves of the Ouroboros. If you remember our Jordan Peterson conversation about maps of meaning, it's the idea that whatever the symbol is that's used in religion and mythology to talk about the beginning of things, it's usually conceptualized as a as a a wholeness, as a unity, as a something that's round, something that has no beginning or end, uh, something like the snake swallowing its tail, which is what the Ouroboros is, or something like the yin and the yang symbol from from uh, from China, something like that. Um, and what's also interesting about this idea of Mother Earth and Father Sky, it's not just that they're the two halves of the primordial egg, whatever you want to call it, the Ouroboros, the thing that everything comes from. The Big Bang, the seed of the Big Bang, whatever that is, that is made up of Father Earth, excuse me, Mother Earth and Father Sky. That's where you came from. Um, but it's where the, all the cosmos came from. So there's, there's that idea. There's also an interesting relation to Mother Earth and Father Sky, which has something to do with this. The Earth, obviously, is considered material, terrestrial, the place where we live, the place where you can reach down and grab the sand and let it run through your fingers. It's real. So Earth, Mother Earth, has to do with the connection to the material world. Father Sky, or Father Heaven, on the other hand, has to do with this ethereal world of the stars and heaven where the gods live. So what's also interesting about this is like even if I don't have an actual mother or father alive, even if I have no memory of them, it's like, as far as I'm concerned, I, I don't know what a mother or father is. I'm the last man on Earth. I was raised by wolves like motherfucking Mowgli. I don't know what a, what a mother or father is. Even that person could potentially have this mythological perspective um, of, uh, again, the earth and the uh, sky um, being somehow somehow like parental forces or creative forces. And, and it, you, might, you may think that that's an out there um, thing to come to, but every ancient religion that I'm aware of, and going back as far into history as you possibly can, have this type of an idea. And that goes all across the world and all across time, which means almost certainly that those ideas were not borrowed from one group that came up with it, but many groups came up with it all on their own. Because when you exist as a human being in nature, when you're living on the bounty of Mother Earth and you're fighting for your life every day against nature, um, you, you are grateful. You become grateful for the things that preserve you. And the Earth and the sky seem like like the sheltering arms of, of God. And, uh, you know, that's how this ancient perspective was. So even these people would potentially have this idea of a mother and a father, even if they didn't have their own mother and father or even any memory of them. Um, and it's also, again, it's also interesting that this idea of earth and sky or, or matter and spirit, let's say, that those are, that is the way that human beings come to understand themselves almost everywhere, almost you know, in any in any time, in any religious tradition, in any culture, human beings see themselves as somehow different from everything else in reality. Uh, when what is that? It's like we are a mixture 
of reality and God. We're a mixture of matter and spirit. We have something going on mixed in with us that makes us unique. It makes us special. It was something that we attribute to, you know, the thing that animates, that makes us alive. Um, that's, that's part of our, that, that makes the, the cosmos exist, something like that. And it's really not difficult to get there, um, you know, uh, psychologically. Even if you were the only man on earth, these are things that would be apparent to you. Uh, or at least they might be. So in this way, even the only man on earth could recognize the power of birth and death in nature and the cosmic mystery of the canopy of the stars and sky above above them. You know, they, they're going to recognize that. You, can, you, can't, you can't help but do it. Um, the, the honor due to these parents, Mother Earth and Father Sky, seems again to be a kind of appreciation to me appreciation for the gift of life and of existence and if you existed again in this primitive place you know you're the only man on earth you don't really have the benefit of culture it's just you and your thoughts and the earth and nature right that even even that person is going to understand that they survive that they move on they open their eyes another day and see the sunrise another day um, partly because they were brought here they had the opportunity to exist by this cosmic mystery that they that they can see reflected in this starry mystery of heaven, and um, the good graces of nature, which they see all around them, and the the fruiting trees and the uh, cave that gives them shelter and all that sort of thing. It would be difficult to not uh, make that connection. Interesting. Okay, how about the next one? Thou shalt not kill. Remember. We're looking at this from the, the perspective of the only human being. Thou shalt not kill. Does it mean anything? Well, if you were the only human, there would be no one to kill. So does it mean anything? So just putting ourselves in a boat we were just in. If I'm the last person that you know on earth, if I'm the only human being, to honor my father and mother doesn't really mean anything because I don't have a father and mother. Thou shalt not kill doesn't really mean anything. Because there is no one around for me to have the opportunity to kill, the desire to kill, the, the thought to kill. It can't be done. It's an act that cannot be done. So it doesn't mean anything. So let's think about it. If you were the only human, there would be no one to kill. I, I agree with you. I go that far. Except maybe yourself. Dun, dun, dun. Oh, shit. I'm bringing suicide into the mix. Okay. So... Thou shalt not kill if you're the only human being alive. Does that, does that pertain to yourself, maybe? You know, it seems like it does. Why would it not? Why would it be prohibited? Why would God say, hey, don't kill anybody. Don't kill yourself. I don't know. Is, is God a good libertarian? Is he, is he going to tell you, hey, you've got perfect freedom. You can do whatever you want, uh, and that's perfectly fine so long as you're not hurting yourself or other people? That's what a libertarian would say. So if God is, uh, if God's a libertarian, um, you know, maybe he says as long, as long as you're not hurting anybody else, it's okay. But what's the difference? What's the difference between somebody else and yourself? I don't know. I don't. Th- I don't know that there is one. So, so maybe from the perspective on the last man on earth, this question is particularly interesting because to commit suicide in this case would be the end of human life as we know it. Right, because we're the last man on earth. So if I kill myself, game over. No more human being. 
So it will be the end of human being. But maybe, but maybe it would be the end of self-consciousness also. So this is a little hippy-dippy, but let me ask you. You know, we can see other, other animals and, you know, plant life and, and even simple, you know, much more simple life like viruses, like bacteria, like, you know, things like that. We can look at those things and we can, you know, we could probably agree or at least make the argument that those things are alive and that they have some consciousness because they're alive. You know, I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong about that. Maybe, maybe that's not exactly the case, but it seems to be the case to me. So you may have, of course, even if human beings aren't here, other things around, so other conscious creatures. But the question is, do you have any self-conscious creatures? It's one thing to know. It's another thing to know that you are. So this is the difference between like a, um, like a, like a dog, let's say, um, in nature. A dog is going to go around and respond to its stimulus. It's going to respond to its environment. If it's, th- if it's thirsty, it's going to find something to drink. If it's hungry, it's going to hunt and find something to eat. If it's tired, it's going to sleep. Um, you know, these are the things it's going to do. What it's not going to do is think about itself hunting or sleeping or eating and propose strategies for improving them or, um, or you know, teach, teach something to another dog. You know, it's not, going, it's not aware that it's aware. So it, it is aware, it has some consciousness, but it's not aware that it's aware. It doesn't, it doesn't have the same type of consciousness as we have. It's just sort of responding to its instincts, it's responding to its environment, and nothing else. So if you don't have something that's self-conscious like us, that not only knows, but knows that we know, is that a problem? Is, that, is there something missing there that's important? Because again, if you were the last human being on Earth and you killed yourself, there would be no more human being. But there may also be no more self-consciousness. So what does that mean? You know, why, why would that be such a tragedy? Why would it be a tragedy worth preventing at any cost? A tragedy so bad that Moses in the Bible would say, hey, God told me that we're not supposed to kill. That's a big deal. Why? Maybe for the same reason that we can't say whether a tree falling in a forest makes a sound if no one is around to hear it. It might just be that without a self-conscious creature like man, there is no experience. So what is existence without experience? Let me ask you that. Close your eyes and try to imagine that. There is no experience That's the thing you and I call our existence, for lack of a better word. If there isn't any of that, there's not a self-conscious creature having experience, what's existence? So could could the end of self-consciousness be the end of existence as we know it? Seems like a good reason to preserve life and forbid killing it, doesn't it? Interesting. Interesting. So there's this idea here, and this is getting mystical, and I'm not, not sure Moses goes quite so far. But there's definitely something here that you can pick up on that says the thing that experiences, so that's the conscious creature, that's you and me. Um, we talked how, about how close that idea is of experience to existence, because for, for you and I, there's not much of a difference. It's hard to tell the difference. I'm not sure I can tell the difference. Um, 
so if if you believe what the Bible says that God created the the cosmos, and that that experience of the cosmos exists in our consciousness, it's an experience that we're having. Then to end that consciousness, that self consciousness, is to end creation. It's to end the thing that God created. So there's this really strange connection here in this idea of thou shalt not kill from the perspective of the last man on earth that shows you that this idea of consciousness and this idea of God, even to Moses, weren't so far apart. It's very, very mystical. I love it. All right. What's next? Thou shalt not commit adultery. So here we are. We talked about honoring thy mother and father, and thou shalt not kill from the perspective of the only man on earth. We're kind of looking at the same ballpark with adultery. It's like, look, I'm the only human being. There's no one else. So there's no one for me to honor, mother, father, or otherwise. There's no one for me to kill. And there's certainly no one for me to be unfaithful to or to cheat on. It's just me. It's just me. So does thou shalt not commit adultery mean anything to the last man on earth? Hmm, let's take a look. As I said, if you were the only human, there would be no one to cheat on. There would be no one to commit adultery with or on. So does this have any meaning? So it's interesting to me that honesty and respect are embedded in this prohibition against infidelity. It's like, what's wrong with being, with being unfaithful? What's wrong with you know, uh, committing adultery? Well, it, to do that is to diminish or to demean the value you place on the person that you're supposed to be faithful to. So if you've made that promise um, and you break it, um, it's sort of a type of lying. It's, you know, you, there's dishonesty there. There's, uh, you know, the, there's the breaking of a vow, which, you know, uh, that's that's serious business. And then there's this lack of respect. It's like, I wouldn't want somebody to do it to me, but I'm going to do it to them. That, so that what that does is it is it implies that I don't share the same value. I don't place the same value on them as I do on myself. And that seems to be where the problem is, to value someone else less and to value yourself. Interesting. So that too sort of like makes you wonder if the emphasis isn't on your identity with the other person. So I know we're talking about the Old Testament, um, you know, but you can but you can kind of fast forward to the New Testament. You can see the the turn the other cheek mentality that Jesus brings brings to the picture. Um, you know, washing the feet of his of his apostles. Let's say you get you get these examples that show you that there may be a connection between God and man that is a question of identity, that there maybe there isn't a difference between God and man. So it's mystical, you know, and, I, and I, I guess what I'm pointing out here too is that if respect and faithfulness are something that I would desire for myself, then I should be, then I should be fulfilling that with other people and my behaviors and my, and my uh, you know, actions with them. If I don't, what it's saying is that I don't, acknowledge their identity with myself. I think that they're less worthy of it than I am. And that seems to be the critical error because perhaps they and and I are the same. And to pretend that that's not the case um, and, and how we're the same from the mystic perspective is that we're God. So to treat God with disrespect or to treat another human being with disrespect or to treat another human being in a way that I myself wouldn't like to be treated, that is a... That is a sin. It's a slap in the face to God. It's to treat 
your creator that way, to treat God that way. And, you know, in the perspective of Jesus, what do we do to that, to that guy? How do we treat God then? Wasn't, wasn't good. I might, I might remind you, it wasn't good. All right, so in, in a world of many, so in a world where we see all of these many things, objects in the world, we're expected to be honest and open with one another, presumably because this recognizes the respect due to any child of God, to any creature of God, or creation of God. It also, it also, however, recognizes our identity with one another. So we treat, well, we treat others as we'd like to be treated ourselves, right? Why? Because they and I are the same somehow. I treat you the way I want to be treated because in some fundamental way, in some very critical way, you and I are the same. So I should treat you as I would like to be treated. I wouldn't want to be cheated on, so I shouldn't cheat on you. But for the last man on earth, does this still have context? I'm the only, I'm the only man. So does this prohibition against adultery, thou shalt not commit adultery... Does it say that maybe we should be faithful and honest with ourselves also? Right? If we if we owe that to to other people, don't we owe that to ourselves? Seems like it. So even if there is no one else to cheat on or to be unfaithful to, do we still have to kind of consider being unfaithful to ourselves? Seems like it. But why? What does that mean? See, I think it's because lying or deceiving yourself, which, which we all do, we all do, it forces you to exist in a world that doesn't correspond to reality, a world that doesn't make sense, where things don't work as planned, where suffering is the norm. And this, would, this is what Jordan Peterson says when he talks about the realm of chaos. You find yourself in the realm of chaos where the model you have of the world is wrong, and you keep believing it's right, and everything you do is not is not working out like you thought it would. You're not getting the reactions that you thought you were going to get. Everything is going haywire. It's because you're not honest with yourself about what the world is actually like, what you are actually like. You got to be honest with yourself so that you can so that you can go about your business in a way that's going to actually mean anything, that's going to actually get you anywhere. It has to correspond with the way the world is. So you got to pay attention to that. And people deceive themselves all the time. Uh, I often bring up this, the example of the pathological liar that we all know, this person that basically created a hell that they live in um, because they lie to themselves and everybody else. And, uh, you know, they're, they're, every, every time they open their mouth, it's just a, a challenge because they have to remember all the lies that they, the cathedral of lies that they've constructed. Um, and they're always manipulating people and, and uh, you know, trying to get out of taking responsibility and covering up, the, you know, whenever they're found out, they want to cover it up and it just, it's just terrible. And this, this example comes up about somebody that deceives themselves. It's that person. So maybe this idea of, a, of a pro- prohibiting adultery, you know, saying, hey, a human being is something that's, that's deserving of honor. It's something that came from God, just like you. It's deserving of honor and honesty. To deceive anyone, yourself or somebody else, is a great sin for that reason. Uh, and you can see it again. It's not just about how we're how we're treating other people. If we consider treating ourselves that way, and 
And that's an, it's an interesting illustration of that self-consciousness idea that I just brought up. When I said dogs aren't seemingly self-conscious, but we are. Because I'm asking you, I'm talking about the idea that we could deceive ourselves as if we're two people, right? The person that is doing the deceiving and the person that is being deceived are the same person. So that's that illustration of self-consciousness. That's how we are different from a dog because we can we respond to ourselves like that. Where a dog's only responding to the world, but we can deceive even ourselves. It's amazing. And if you and if you do that, you're going to you're going to be living in hell. You can lie yourself into hell, it would seem. A hell of your own creation. So maybe that, that is some meaning that we can attribute to this thou shalt not commit adultery, even, even to the last man on earth. Next, thou shalt not steal. So this one's interesting. We could probably make a similar argument here like we've been doing. Uh, but the idea of you were the only human on earth... What I mean, either you could look at it like everything belongs to you, kind of does, or that nothing belongs to you um, if you're the only human being. And in either case, stealing is not a thing. How could it be a thing? There's nobody else to take something from. Um, again, we, we might be able to talk about this in terms of in terms of stealing from yourself somehow. I'm not sure how I'd make that argument, but this one does seem to be kind of more cut and dry. Stealing when you're the last person on earth doesn't really make a lot of sense, doesn't really have a lot of meaning. Um, the next one on the list, thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. This, this is the lying prohibition, not don't lie. Again, same argument. How can I lie to anybody if I'm the only person left? There's nobody to speak with. There's nobody I can speak to. There's nobody I can I can pull the wool over their eyes. How am I supposed to lie if there's nobody else in existence? Lying seemingly wouldn't exist unless you count lying to yourself. So same same sort of argument. We have to we have to look at that. Is that a thing? Is it possible to lie to yourself? I mean, like we just talked about with a person that that uh, the compulsive liar that that exists in some sort of self-created hell. Of course you can. That's an interesting thing that you can lie to yourself, but it, you can. Uh, it's like, um, you know, I struggle with, uh, you know, m- m- most of my life with weight and uh, trying to you know, keep it under control. And for most of my childhood, I was a big, big fat kid. Um, the way that I lied to myself during that time about my behaviors, the lack of exercise, the eating too much, the you know, all the bad decisions I was making that were leading me to their... Um, to that reality, I was lying to myself about that and was convinced that I was doing everything I could and that I was, you know, sitting in a, you know, ocean of bad luck or my, it was my genes or, you know, whatever, point the fingers at anybody else but myself. That was my lying to myself. And it was amazing how convinced I was by it. It was amazing how I didn't think that I was lying to myself. And when I finally, when I finally came to, when everything finally came to a head and I finally cracked down on myself, got disciplined, it took, it took it under my own control, I was doing things I never even considered doing before because I had so sufficiently 
buried myself in dishonesty, that I, I believed it. I believed my own lies and thought I was just a big fat guy and it was not my fault and I was going to have to be that way forever. That turned out to not be the, be the case. So you can absolutely lie to yourself and you can lie yourself into a corner. You can lie yourself into, you can bully yourself by lying to yourself. And that's sort of what I did. Kept myself from getting what I wanted by keeping myself buried in this falsehood. It's, it's amazing. And even as a self-conscious creature, it took me years to notice that I was doing it to myself. Unbelievable. All right. Um, all right, so lying to yourself. Okay. So to lie to yourself is to knowingly misrepresent yourself or the world and choosing to believe that it represents reality when it doesn't. And that's what, that's what I was explaining to you with that example. To do so is to live a lie, to live in a world that does not accord with reality. So it's, it's that descent into chaos, like Jordan Peterson would say. And now I'm living in this world. It seems like I can't get out of this, this uh, maze that I'm in. I can't get out of this labyrinth that I'm in. Of, of, in, in my example, it was you know, health. I couldn't, get, I couldn't find the end of that labyrinth. And it's because I had, I had created that labyrinth. I'd spun that web of lies so, so bad I couldn't get out of it. And it's, it's amazing sometimes what it takes to get out of it. And for me, and for most people, it's some sort of big slap in the face, where reality slaps you in the face. Um, I saw a commercial just yesterday, like a thousand times. It was a silly reality TV show commercial, and it was um, showing this woman, this um, kind of uh, obese um, woman, and she's trying to get out in the dating world again. And you know, there was this scene where she's been told by a panel of people, and this one particularly rude guy that tells her nobody would want to have sex with somebody that like her. And she just cries and you know runs off the stage. And I feel very, very bad for her. Um, where was I going with this? <laughs> where was I going with this story? Um, oh, life slapping you in the face. So this is one of those things where my heart was like, oh, how cruel this poor lady, you know, she, she's just got this terrible piece of information that wasn't entirely true, but mostly true. You know, she obviously hadn't done anything to keep up with her, with her health and her, you know, her body. She hadn't done it much to make herself look presentable and she still wanted romance, but she hadn't done what was necessary to make herself, um, you know, m more attractive to 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 achieve that end. She didn't do what she needed to try to achieve that end, and was wallowing in her sadness because it was pointed out to her. And I, and like the first part of me is like empathetic. I'm I, I you know I feel very very bad for her. I wanna I wanna yell at that mean man. I wanna protect her. I wanna make her feel better. Um. But he, but he wasn't. But the mean man wasn't wrong exactly, and sometimes life has to slap you in the face like that, and that's exactly what happened to me when I decided I had to lose weight and finally, finally take a you know, uh, take the, make the sacrifices I needed to make. So when you're living in a world that that doesn't correspond to reality, that's what you're setting yourself up for. You're you're moving along in this world thinking everything's you know coming up roses everything's going to work function like it's supposed to your actions are going to get the results you expect them to get and suddenly the world slaps you in the face suddenly the world says hey nobody's going to want to have sex with you <laughs> you know and you're like oh shit um, now you're forced to to confront that reality and it's very very painful it's very hard 
And some people think that the nice thing to do is to let people live in that, in that lie, you know, let that, let that, you know, ugly fat woman, let's say, and, you know, I hate saying that it seems mean and I hate being mean, but this is what the gentleman was pointing out. Should we let that woman live in that space where she never gets what she wants, um, but, but can be, you know, uh, fat, fat, you know, fat for the rest of her life and, and, you know, just let her, let her live in this lie that even though she never gets what she wants, she never has to do any hard work to get it. And somehow that's better. You know, Jesus, I, I, I don't know that I agree with that. So I'm the person, the first person that doesn't want to be mean to somebody who wants to preserve your feelings. Um, but sometimes the world will slap you in the face. And if you're not prepared for it, um, it can, it can absolutely derail you. Maybe good, it may be bad. For me, it was good, thank God. So it seems to me that to prohibit lying, even or especially to yourself, serves to ensure that we honestly encounter the world and the world honestly responds. So what would it be to encounter the world falsely and have it respond falsely? It sounds dangerous to me and well worth avoiding. All right, what do we have next? Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. So this one goes on, you know, there's more to it. It, it, it has the old, uh, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, or manservant, or maidservant, or ox, or ass, and blah, 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 blah. So it's got that old that old language there from the Bible that uh, basically talking, it's talking about things. So you don't covet your neighbor's things, whether it be their, you know, their house, their spouse, their, uh, you know, their things, that you're not to covet them. Okay, so from the perspective of the only man on earth, there is no neighbor. There are no other people's things. So does this commandment make any sense to the only man on earth? Thou shalt not covet. Well, there'd be no, there'd be no, uh, no one with things that you don't have and want. There'd be nobody else. Um, so there'd be no covetousness, right? There'd be no, there would be nothing to covet or no one to covet. But this, this one too, it, it rings of appreciation and, and a callback to other commandments because, because to covet is to want something unearned or to compare what you have to what you'd like to have. So this implies a, a, a lack of satisfaction with what you have or a lack of gratitude, right? Now, if you're supposed to believe that God has provided for you, you know, your life in the material world, then to want something else to want something more is ungrateful, right? I mean, imagine if you're to believe the, the, the myth, if you're believed to believe the Christian narrative, or the, in this case the Jewish narrative, um, God from nothing created the majesty of the cosmos. So the infinite infinity of space, the black holes, the stars of all shapes and sizes, the cosmic energy and radiation, um, you know, uh, matter, um, electromagnetism, all the forces of, of nature that work together to spin the planets and rotate the galaxies and cause the plants to grow and life to form and all that stuff. Um, absolute miracle. And you're saying that's not enough. So that, that seems pretty ungrateful to me. So there's something like that going on. So it prevents you from appreciating what you have and what is it appreciates you from appreciating being all around you. So this is kind of a slap in the face to God, who 
after all, created you and all of being according to the story. Are you saying it's not good enough? The infinite and beautiful cosmos? The miracle of your existence? Ingratitude, that's what I say. All right, so that rounds up the commandments that have to do with how we react or how we we interact with other people. And it's interesting because there's one level to which none of these commandments have any context or meaning. If I'm the only man left, no mother and father to honor, no one, no one I can kill, no one I can cheat on, no one I can steal from, uh, nothing I can covet, no one I can lie to. None of it. But there is that other way of looking at it, where it's like, it's not exactly clear that when I'm talking about how I should treat other human beings, that I can somehow ignore myself when I'm talking about that. That maybe, if I'm even still, if I'm the only person on earth, that the commandments still are saying something about how I should behave or how I should act. It's interesting. All right, so let's go back to the beginning and talk about these commandments that have to do with with ourselves and God. These are interesting. So all this stuff we're reading comes from the 20th chapter of Exodus, and 20th chapter of Exodus, it starts like this. And God spake all these words, saying... I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. So that's how it opens. <laughs> it's powerful. It's powerful when you consider that these are supposed to be the words of God that were given to Moses. So you can imagine Moses up on the mountain talking to the Spirit of God, whatever that means. You can just imagine the... the Imagine the movie with the best director, the best special effects. Moses is up on the mountain talking to the Spirit of God. What does that look like? I don't know, but you can picture it in your head. It's pretty cool. And God says, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought you out of the land of Egypt. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. That's that's a pretty... I don't know if it's... I don't know if it's angry, but it's definitely a firm opening line. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. But again, let's look at that from the perspective of the only man alive, the only man left. So if I'm the only person, I might presumably come up with an idea of God on my own. So I'm not going to rule that out. That, that That's probably likely because it's happened everywhere on earth and all across all times and in every culture. The idea of God has developed. So I can pretty much safely say that even if I was the last man on earth, this notion, this idea of a creator or of supernatural power of, of God, that that's something that might still um, come up. But would that idea be an idea of one God or an idea of many gods? And that's a good question because the, the commandment saying you, sh- you shouldn't have any other gods before me, so that presumes a few things. It presumes that there must be more than one idea of God, or at least, or, or more than one God for that matter. So here's the question. If I'm the only human being on earth, would there be one God or many gods? Is it possible to hold one God above another? It would require that I have an idea of more than one God to do that. It's not like if there are other people and I come into contact with someone from another tribe and they have their own idea of God. And if that differs from mine, we have a problem. But in this case, I'm the only person. So the idea of God that I come up with is the only idea of God. 
There is no other God. It's only the thing that I've come up with in my head. So that's interesting. So, so I have a thought on this that says something like, if I were coming up with the idea of God, like the idea of, you know, the question kind of goes something like this, and it goes through every child's mind at some point. How did things get here? You know, if I came from my parents, my parents came from their parents, you continue to go back all the way as far back as you can. Where's the beginning? Where did it start? So there's this idea that comes up that has to do with the creation of the cosmos, with the origin of everything. And this, I think, is where the idea of God comes from, uh, you know, logically, when you're thinking about it. Some people will say other things, like, you know, you can see, you know, the majesty of a waterfall, and you can see the power of fire, and, you, you know, then you're going to come up with these ideas about, the, about spirits that move the water, that, you know, spirits that burn the wood, that, that somehow these many ideas of spirits um, will come about just, just the same. But I have to disagree with that. I think you don't come up with this idea of many spirits or many gods until you first come up with the idea of God, whatever that is. So it's this idea of the divine. What is that? You need that first before you can split it up and di differentiate it into a bunch of different gods. It seems to me that the idea of, of God, like a single idea, is simpler than, than an idea of a pantheon where, where you have a bunch of gods and they all have their own stories and relationships with, with each other, like the classical Greeks or something. That's a way more complicated idea. It's way more developed. It's way later in the development than the idea of one god. So if I'm, again, the only human being on earth, and I'm asking myself, how did things get here? There must have been a beginning. That's, that's the idea of God, and it's not the idea of many things. It's the idea of one thing, whatever it is that caused this. That's what God is. So I wouldn't fracture that idea. What, what purpose would there be for me to fracture that idea into many different things? It'd be like complete speculation. It would have no bearing. So if I'm somebody who doesn't have to worry about conflict with other people, no, no different languages, no different ideas about God, there's no cultural diversity or diversity in ideas, what purpose would it serve for me to take this idea of, hey, what, whatever it is that caused the universe, whatever that beginning was, that's what I'm going to call God. Why would I split that up and call it many things? It just doesn't, doesn't make sense. It seems like an overcomplication. Compl comp it doesn't seem like something I would do. Um, again, there is that naturalistic idea that, that you see diversity in nature, and then therefore the idea of a diversity of gods comes about. And I don't, I don't disagree with that. I just think that that's a later development. So we would start with the idea of divinity, whatever that means, before we would move on to abstracting it or representing it in other ways. So if I'm the only man on earth, there would be no other gods to put before anything. There would only be the idea that I've come up with. So, thou shalt have no other gods before me if I'm the only human being. To me, I really don't know what, that's, what that means, if it, has, if it has any meaning. I'm not sure. Alright, let's look at the next one. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God. I always thought that was a cool, a cool line because the idea that God might be jealous to me always seemed like an interesting thing, um, and it's worth it's worth talking about. Uh, but here's the idea: if I'm the only man on earth, and and this commandment tells me not to make a graven image or and bow down and worship it, that 
Does that, does that have an impact on me? So the first thing I want to say is that it's not clear to me because the whole passage, I skipped a little bit here just for simplicity. The whole passage says, Thou shalt not make any graven images or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. So he's basically saying, don't make any graven image of anything. So it's not clear to me if what's being prohibited is representing God or if it's representing anything at all. It's like, hey, don't represent God, or hey, don't represent anything. And it kind of seems to me like it's the latter. It's saying, don't represent anything. It's also, it's also not clear to me if there's really a distinction between the two. So to say, to say that you can't represent God, or to say that you can't represent anything in being, whether it's whether it's heaven, earth, or, or the sea, you know, all the things that we experience, you know, in creation. If those things are the same as God, then there is no difference between saying don't represent God or don't represent nature. And it goes back to our discussion of Mother Nature and Father Sky earlier. There's not a big difference between nature and the idea of God. They're they're very highly correlated that when we think about the beginning what caused all this into motion what you know what what caused being to come in to come into existence that that whatever that idea is is connected to the laws that govern the world and that's what we call nature um so if if this is a prohibition against um making an image of god then then we again would say that the single human, the last person that exists, their idea of God, it would be singular. And so any worship of God at all would be the worship of that one God as conceptualized in that one person's mind. Serving any God would be serving the only God. That's what I'm saying. So if there's only one human being on earth, there's only one conception of God. Anything that person does to worship God is worship of the only God that exists. There aren't any other gods because there isn't a conception of any other gods. There's only one human, and therefore there's only one idea of God. If God is in actuality one and not many, and that's what the mystic experience tells you, then worshiping God by any name or form would be worship of God nonetheless. So that's interesting. It's like... Um, this is this is like a debate that you, you could bring up if you if somebody's in conflict with somebody else from another religion about religion. You know, if you can get to the heart of of agreement that God is one, that that there is only one God, um, then logically it doesn't it doesn't matter what name you call God, right? So even if I can say that there is only one God, for sure. If I knew that, for sure. And I don't. I mean, I could say that the mystic intuition is there, and I'm convinced by it, but I'm not saying I know for certain. Um, but if that's the case, that there is actually only one God, and you know, other people are worshiping God as though he's many, like the Greeks did, what's the difference? If there's only one God, all of their prayers, all of their sacrifices, they're directed at God. Does it matter whether you're, they're calling it a different name or a bunch of different names? I'm not. I'm not convinced that it does. Although the Bible seems to, seems to say otherwise when it says, "I, the, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God." So that that's never really set well with me. Um, but what about the prohibition against making an image or a representation of anything of nature? What about that? So to me, that that harkens back to something 
that we talked about from the Taoists earlier in, in the, their holding book, the Tao Te Ching, it, it says something like this. That which is called Tao is not the real Tao. And so that's the word that, the closest word in that religion to God. Um, so that which is called Tao is not the, not the real Tao. And what they mean by that is that any effort we make to, to make the infinite knowable, Tao or God in this case, even even is something as simple as to call it a name, to put a name on it, that it immediately takes you off the course of truth. The idea is that any representation that's placed upon God would not contain God. It wouldn't contain the idea. Uh, it wouldn't account for the entire the entirety of God. It, it would be it would be false and misleading. So to make a graven image of God would be to belittle the idea of God. Because what you're doing is you're pretending that, that the idea of God could be captured by any form at all or by any substance. So like, you know, the golden cow that, 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 that the, um, the people following Moses created while he was up on the mountain getting these, getting these rules from God. Um, you know, what that says is that there's something about gold, there's something about the cow, there's something about this statue that they've created that captures God, that holds it in, and so I can I can access God through the cow, I can pray and worship worship God through the idol, and that what the presumption is, is that I've been able to contain God. So nothing is great enough or dynamic enough to contain the infinite. And I think this maybe goes to the heart of the idea of representation. Because to represent anything is, is presumptive. To represent anything, whether, we, whether it be something in nature or whether it be the idea of God, that any of those, any of those representations are doing something they can't possibly do. They're, they're wrapping up into a tight little bow everything you need to know about this infinite, you know, magical thing. The, the matrix of being, as Jordan would say, the thing, the, the seed of the Big Bang, that where everything came from, whatever that is, I'm going to call it consciousness, but whatever that is, and I can, I can represent it and, and build walls around it and, and contain it in, within this word. Like that, again, it maybe is the height of arrogance. And it, it sends you down the wrong path because it because it's not truthful. It's not a truthful way of understanding what God is. As soon as I say Tao or God, what I'm doing is making this infinite power something that it's not somehow. And if I believe that, then I'm really I'm really on the road to, you know, falsity. I'm on the I'm on the road of error. Because even using that word and having this idea reinforced in my head that the great power of being is something that can be contained in a word or or in a form and a representation that that's something that uh, that's 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 arrogant um, and again it's going to lead me down the wrong path in understanding what God is and if I can't if I don't understand what God is I have that much more difficult of a time understanding just what the hell I am so it's bad news and I think that's why I think that's why it says I for I the Lord thy God am a jealous God. Um, okay. Next one says, "Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord uh, God in vain." So don't take the Lord's name in vain. Your mom probably told you that. Mine did. Um, all right. So again, from the perspective of the only man alive. So if there were only one human, there would be only one idea of God, like like we said, and therefore only one name for God, if at all. I mean, maybe you wouldn't maybe you wouldn't give a name to it at all. 
But if you did, it would be that whatever name you gave it and no other. So there aren't other people, other languages, or other ideas. So there's only one name for God. The in vain bit, on the other hand, that does seem to require respect, though, uh, you know, in, in speaking of God. So it seems like being respectful is, is, what's, is, is what's being emphasized. But why? Remember, you're the only man on earth, so why should you be respectful of the idea that you've created in your mind about God? You're the only person to, th- to think those thoughts, the only person to hold that thought. Whatever name you've given it, that's the name it is. So why should you respect that? Is it, is it a figment of your imagination? Is it something that requires respect? That seems weird. Why? Maybe because to be disrespectful of the creator of the universe goes hand in hand with a deep kind of ingratitude. The kind of ingratitude that allows one to reject being. So somebody that says life is suffering and existence is cruel and meaningless. Those sorts of people. Someone like this, someone who doesn't believe that existence justifies itself, that person thinks their own existence is a kind of mistake, and that all existence is a mistake. This person rejects themselves just as they reject God. As long as they do so, so they are unable to see the miracle that is being, and become the, the, the nihilist, you know, the, the Cain from the Cain and Abel story, or as Jordan Peterson would say, the, the, the teenage Columbine shooters, the, those people, um, who live only to destroy themselves and whatever else they can, they can manage to take down with them. People that hate being. And it, and it comes from ingratitude. So you can put yourselves in the shoes of these Columbine teenagers who are in that awkward teenage phase that everybody has to get through. But, you know, it's, it's, that's not to say it's easy. It's not. It's, it's fucking hard to, to put yourself in a situation where, you know, you're growing up, you have your own ideas and desires, you want things for yourself, you want to, you know, be like, like the successful people you see around you that you admire, you want to do the things you know you're, you're in, meant to do, either socially or biologically, you want to you get a girlfriend or a boyfriend, you want to get married and have kids, you want to have a social life and friends, and you want to do things and have experiences. And when you're a nerd, when you're, you know, overweight, when you, you know, when you're come from a poor family, you don't have nice clothes, maybe you don't shower well, all of the things that make people when they're young, uh, you know, outcast from society, that those people can never get those things that they want, no matter what they do. And so life becomes such a desperate, a desperate thing. Every action is, is grasping at, at straws. It's just barely, you know, everything that they do is getting, is getting them the opposite of what they want. It's making things worse. They get desperate, they get nihilistic, and they go and they shoot up everybody, and they kill everybody, and they, and they commit suicide and kill themselves. So this is the idea that, that ingratitude or lack of respect for God can bring you to the point where you no longer value the work of God. You no longer value creation or your own life. And you might even get to the point where you are so spiteful about it that you'll end it all for yourself and for other people. It's a very dangerous path to go down. And it seems to me that the commandment that says, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain has to do with something like that. You know, from the mystic perspective, you are God. So to be disrespectful to God 
is to be disrespectful to yourself. To hate God and his creation is to hate yourself. And that's the kind of thing that leads somebody to commit suicide or to kill other people. All right, now we're getting there. Uh, This is the last one. Remember the Sabbath day. Keep it holy. All right, remember, you're the only human being on earth. Nobody's around seeing whether you went to church or not. Nobody's, Nobody's taking attendance. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. What does that mean for you, the only man on earth? So this commandment has always seemed to me to be one of thankfulness and gratitude and appreciation. It's the idea that we're going to set aside a day, one day a week. Um, We're going to call it special, just like we do with holidays today. Arbitrary, but we're going to pick a day, we're going to call it special, we're going to use it as a meditation, as an opportunity to continually reflect on being, on the creation, and appreciate its beauty and its bounty. It's an it's incredible power to recognize the great privilege that it is to partake in it. So this goes back to what I was talking about earlier about praying as a kid and, and appreciating all those things that we take for granted. There's so much that we take for granted. Most most everything we take for granted, to be honest. You know, Jordan Jordan Peterson talks about this from a psychological perspective, but he's he's basically says, you know, hey, we we learn new you know, tasks and skills, and it's hard when we're doing that. And then what we do is we master it. We move that stuff into our unconscious somehow. Then we can do it without without the effort anymore. Then we just have these we just have these new skills. Um, and I've lost my I've lost my thread there. In any case, um, this this idea of a Sabbath is really about gratitude, and you can see that theme. It seems to be rolling through these commandments. This idea of gratitude and appreciation, uh, and I think this uh, uh, to remember the Sabbath is is one of those things. So even if you were the only man on earth, to make time to meditate and to be grateful for the things around you, for for the opportunity to live, for the opportunity to uh, to experience existence, and um, you know it's it the, the miracle that it is uh, because it is because it freaking is. Um, and that would be just as just as valuable for you if you were the only human being alive. You know, would be just as valuable. All right. So those are the ten commandments. Um, which which of the ten commandments holds for the last man on earth, or for the first? If you're the only human being, can you see which of those hold and which don't? What do you think? In the absence of other people, you know there are no quote other gods. Because there's only your conception of what God is. You have no father or mother to honor. There is no one to steal from, to kill, to commit adultery on or with. No one to lie about, no one to covet. So which commandments remain? Don't make graven images. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. And remember the Sabbath? Is that it? What do we make of this? Well, to make graven images, as we've said can be seen as belittling or disrespectful to the power of creation, to presume that it can be represented or contained within a representation. Taking the Lord's name in vain, meaning disrespectfully, and remembering the Sabbath, both reinforce the idea that respect, honor, and recognition are due to the power of creation. For the gift of existence, um, that we should never forget that. But why? Because those who forget to be grateful, those who fail to stop and smell the roses, 
those who fail to recognize the great and impossible fact of existence. Those people never offset the pain of being with the pleasure of it. They accumulate resentment until they are overwhelmed by it and sink into depression and chaos. They never come to know God or to recognize their identity with it. Ingratitude is the surest path away from truth and away from meaning. Man. All right, so we're not quite done. There's one other thing I wanted to, I wanted to plant in your head, uh, something to chew on. And it's right at the end of this passage in, Genesis, in uh, Exodus 20. So we've just finished reading the Ten Commandments. Um, in this passage, God is explaining to Moses how he should worship God. So he's like, after he gives him the rules, he's saying, hey, this is how you should worship me. And I want to read this to you. Um, verse 24, it says, says this, An altar of earth thou shalt make unto me, and shalt sacrifice thereon. In all places where I record my name, I will come unto thee, and I will bless thee. All right. So this is interesting. I don't know if you picked up on it, but this is interesting for a reason. There's more we could say about how God talks about uh, how he should be worshipped. In this case, talking about how you build the altar and, and all that. We could talk more about it, but this is what I think is interesting. The passage stands out to me as particularly interesting in the language that it uses. In a nutshell, it is saying that if Moses and his people build an altar to God as instructed, God promises to dwell there and to bless the people who worship there. Strangely, however, something altogether mystic comes across. Something that might strike you as odd coming from the Hebrew Old Testament. God says, In all the places where I record my name, I will come unto thee and bless thee. But who is building the altar? And who is recording God's name? Is it God himself or Moses? It's Moses, of course. But God says, where I record my name. Spoken as if Moses, who is building the altar, is God himself. I'm pointing it out, guys. If it is God recording his name, he's doing it through Moses, through a conscious being, through consciousness. So here we see a, a Freudian slip where God acknowledges his identity with consciousness. The same consciousness that Moses and his people possess, and you and I possess. So this is how Moses and God are one in consciousness. So there you have it. The mystic intuition, from the Bible no less. But you see, it's this Freudian slip, this mystic intuition, I think, that brings us full circle to where we've started. To examine the Ten Commandments from the perspective of the only human being. See, if all is one, as the mystic intuition says, God and his creation then, the commandments that address our relationship with God and those that address our relationship with one another, they kind of bleed together. If we are God, then it doesn't matter if we're the only human in existence or not our relationship with others would be identical to our relationship with God and to ourself as one and the same. So if what the mystic experience says is true, that God is one and all of creation is the same thing as God, 
then the commandments that have to do with how we relate to one another and the commandments that have to do with how we, we relate to God are the same. That's why when we look at those commandments that talk about how we deal with one another, most of them still have pretty significant meaning, even to the only man left on earth. Because those commandments are about how we treat God. And if you're the last man on earth, guess what? God is still there on earth. Something like that. So I shouldn't lie, kill, or covet because I commit those acts against myself. I shouldn't dishonor my parents or my creator because those two I commit against myself. And the honor and gratitude we owe to God our recognition of our identity with God. Wow. Shout out to Mystic Moses, my man. Well, there you have it. That's one avenue explored, but infinitely more still to go. I hope you enjoyed thinking along with us. I know, I know. It's not easy work thinking. It's hard and full of uncertainties, but I'm grateful for the company as we trek through this together. Here's to hoping that the juice is worth the squeeze. See what I did there? Let's find out together in the next episode. <laughs>